Heavenly Father, um, you've blessed us so abundantly, and we just ask that you would give us the wisdom and how to um, bring out more abundance, both for our families, our schools, um, for the people you want us to minister to. I pray, Lord, that it would show the produce that we grow would show your character, and um, the things we learned here, we'd, it wouldn't be too complicated, but hopefully it's enough for people to um, take it in and learn more. Lord, we just ask that we would see your character in all that we do, and that, well, actually, that other people would see it, and we wouldn't. In your name, amen. Is this too loud? Is this good? No, Okay. Um, I was hoping to have the laptop up here. I'm going to turn this a little bit. But, you know, we're talking today about good information, good decisions, and a good outcome. Everything that we do in life requires that we know something about something. You know, we, um, you know, just driving here, you had to know where, what directions. You had to know where you're starting from. I mean, how in the world can you get to the right place without knowing where you're starting from? Now, there's situations where the Lord will provide the way, but in, in many cases, he's given us a brain, and he's given us the, the ability to exercise the brain. He's given us the glucose to burn and the Krebs cycle and everything else that has to go along to make a body function. Um, feel forward on to the next slide, if that's possible yet. Oh, I didn't, I didn't tell you who I am. I am uh, Sean Spidell. I'm the new farm manager at Daystar Adventist Academy, and our farm is called Castle Valley Farms. I've only been there since about July of this year, but I've seen how the Lord has led up to me coming there. It's, but it's, it's all going to be his program. That'll be fine. Well, let's not worry about the chart just right now. We may not actually get to it this session. So when you build a house, you want it to be built just right. But unfortunately, with soils, somehow soils don't meet that same criteria where things aren't measured very well and things aren't cut very well and, you know, you have a powdery mildew-laden cucurbit crop and, you know, aphid-infested alfalfa crop or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. That's because the construction is not right inside the plant. Um, in the Garden of Eden, it, it talks about a mist coming up out of the ground and watering the garden. That mist was probably not just water, it was probably nutrient-laden as well. So it was the subsurface, it was the original subsurface irrigation system. Like in greenhouses, they, you know, they have subsurface flood floors. Well, or, you know, in hydroponics, they have things that miss the roots with the nutrient solution. But the Lord system that he developed actually was the ideal. But let's go back to this slide here. Um, you know, when you're building a house, you need to analyze where are you? You know, what does your site look like? You know, what, what is the parent material of the soil? What kind of slope do you have? How many soil colors do you have as you cross your landscape? You know, are there places that seem to be deep soil? Other areas are, are thin soil? You need to draw it out knowing your starting and ending points at each phase. So you need to know like what direction you're going, but you also <coughs> need to know how far you can get in a given period of time. When we take a drive, when I was planning out the drive down here, I was thinking, well, we're going to stop over in Kansas City and sleep the night before coming on farther on down here. Well, the same thing is true with the soil. You can't do everything at once. You can't overload a system that it's a biological system with, you know, clay, you know, clay and humus as part of it. 
Um, you need to get all of your tools in order. And believe me, most gardeners probably don't have the right tools or enough tools. Um, it's like when you fix a car, you know, a lot of times you need multiple tools. Well, to fix the soil, um, like Whitmar's talked a little bit about compost, compost is a wonderful tool, but it is not the only tool. And it's not the best tool in all soils. Um, you need a measure for each cut that you make. You need to keep the home in good repair once the construction has actually happened. So we still live in a sinful world that where the soil is degrading. Um, you know, the rainfall leaches that, you know, excessive, you know, some of the things that we do can, can harm the soil as well. You know, our hearts are no different. We have to constantly, we have to constantly be connected to Christ. Well, that's a picture of our farm from like a couple thousand feet up or so. And that was given to one of our um, farmer's market people. She just came over and she, she emailed the picture. Oh, that's a lot better. Thank you. So I, w I just want to make sure we all understand, we all know we're created in God's image um, after his likeness, but to have life abundantly, it's not just, we need a physical body as much as we need, you know, the spirit of the Lord. You know, we do need this full human nutrition. Everyone has inherent successes and struggles from sin. Every soil is no different. You know, you look at an Amazonian soil versus something from, you know, the dry areas of Peru, totally different soil. You look, you know, I've taken a front yard and a backyard soil sample. They're totally different. It's, it's the back backfill was different on the soil. You know, one may have come one day and another one came another day. Well, it's a different soil type altogether. Um, you know, I have sinful tendencies that maybe you don't have and maybe you have sinful tendencies I don't have. You know, but we do need intervention. I, I, I'm just here to say that we all are designed to be a husband men of our soil, if that's the right term. I, I think it is, but, you know, but we are supposed to be caretakers for what the Lord has provided for us. Can you two see? Okay. Um, but it requires intervention. You know, it's just like Christ is our righteousness. You know, we, we can affect that change in the, in the soil, kind of like that like Christ can affect in us. You know, it's like the full nutrition in the soil is like Christ to us. You can't live without it. You can't be perfect without it. Um, this is not to imply that either Whitmar or I are perfect in our soil making decisions, but, you know, the, the nutritional aspect has really been avoided in, um, in most organic gardening and uh, farming. So consider, what are you nourishing your soil with? What good, bad, and no changes do you see from your past actions? And what do you want to see? So you always have to have a goal in mind. What do you want to see? You want to see perfection. Um, you know, people will know that we're Christians by our love. You know, that, that's a sign of perfection. So consider, do you even know what a rest, uh, restoration looks like? You know, do I know what somebody who truly has Christ in him looks like? You know, what is, the, what is a person after the latter rain going to look like? <clears throat> to direct our lives, we require the Holy Spirit, Scripture, Spirit of Prophecy, Nature, and are connected to the vine, brothers and sisters. We need these lenses into our lives because sometimes we can't see the real, reality that's, you know, just staring us in the face. Um, look into the soil requires similar types of lenses. We need a soil test, for instance, to see that we don't have enough zinc. Um, like in my soil, it looks like I have plenty of iron. It's all red soil, but it's 
it's either iron oxide or manganese oxide. I think it's more manganese oxide. So we require lenses where the world is at a, at a place where we can't discern what's beneath our feet as easily as we'd like, to, we'd like it to be. <clears throat> we have a real opportunity, I feel. Um, a lot of agriculture looks like this field behind. You can see where the rain, the, the water washed on through, and now we have a hard pan from improper tillage. So a disc will always produce a hard pan, and that's what's happened on this field. Um, but we have a real opportunity as Adventists to bless other people. Um, the nutritional benefits that we can bring as a people to others is, is astounding if we would just latch onto it and do it. Um, let me read a, a little quote, and I was trying to find the right font color. Blue is not quite it, but anyway, let me read it anyway. But it's, it's from a book I have in the back. It's called How Soils Work. It's by a Sabbath-keeping author, Paul Silty. Um, it says, we must determine what works long-term to build and maintain soil health and also take into account effects of these practices on the social, spiritual, economic, and ecological issues of the present and future. What effect does having only 2% of the country's population producing food and then under considerable financial duress have on society as a whole? Can a depressed farm sector be expected to rebuild soil fertility or exploit and diminish it? And remember what Whitmar was saying, the price of food is essentially at an all-time low, but the value of food is also at an all-time low. You get what you pay for. Can a farmer pay attention to the unique needs of an erosive hill or a corner of a field when time, labor, and debt considerations force him to speed his way across his 3,000-acre spread? So consider like a row crop farmer, um, my friend from Oklahoma. You know, I grew up in Nebraska. Well, it's all row crop out there. They don't do anything but row crop. They have huge, you know, it's bigger is better, bigger is better, bigger is better. Um, bigger is not always better. A lot of times we confuse revenue with profit. You know, what is the debt? What is revenue? Somebody call it out. That's the total amount of money that comes in. What is profit? It's income minus expenses, and it better be a positive number. So in a lot of cases, you know, the farmers tend to look at revenue, and we, we, we've got to think like business people. Business, business people... We gotta we gotta assume that the Lord wants us to be profitable and productive because He's given us that capacity to do so. You look back at Protestant nations also, they've been some of the most prosperous. So to build this prosperity and to help our help to bless our brothers and sisters, those that don't even know Christ, don't have any interest in Christ, these are the ones that are that could be the most receptive to an agricultural gospel. So you need that's really dark on here compared to on my screen. But anyway, all elements of life matter. I just want to make this point really clear that every element, no element is more important than another element. Um, it's even like no law is more important than another law in the Ten Commandments. They all work harmoniously. They all express the character of, uh, of our Savior. So this, this image actually on the right, I, I was kind of surprised to find it because it's actually a very complete image on what plants need nutritionally. It doesn't mean they couldn't take more, but to our knowledge, this is what we know. So you'll see some that Whitmar hasn't gone through. I don't know how many of you know chemistry. How many do you know atomic symbols? 
Okay, some. <laughs> well, there's some on here like SI is silicon. Well, silicon is a plant nutrient, um, especially in the warm season grasses and cucurbit crops. Um, prevents a lot of fungal issues and it helps to release phosphate out of the soil. Uh, cobalt is a nutrient. I don't care what certified organic says, it is a human nutrient and it needs to be added into the soil. Um, chloride is a nutrient, nickel is a nutrient, nickel is required especially for pecans. So my Oklahoma friend here, if he ever wants to plant pecans, he should get a nickel analysis because there's an enzyme called urease that breaks urea apart. So if you don't have urease functional, you have a lot of toxicity and they, they call it mouse ears. Um, so to express a crop's genetics, therefore magnifying the creator, every natural law, including every element of, of life, needs to be adequately present. Not deficient, not in excess, just in balance. So we're talking about balance here, and we want to get that across, that everything is in balance. Um, our crops have to show the purity of character. And like us, they must be tasty, clean, healing, nutritious, not just organic, I'm better than you are attitude. They, they really truly have to be better but they don't have to be you know, yelling it out the window with a bunch of advertising. They just, they just need to be better. Uh, nutrition from the soil to those made in God's image really should constitute our preventive health message in the Adventist church, in my belief. It, it is something that's just not been done. But if we can show people how to grow their own nutrition, um, I think that's, that would be valid. It says... Remember the green cord vision. This was a vision that was brought up in, our, in my church a couple weeks ago in Second Testimonies chapter 73. Even if we can't see Christ, sometimes we must rely solely on him and grab on. We have to grab on. Um, our crops must rest solely on nutrition. And nutrition to a plant is like Christ our righteousness to us. Salvation and purity will never happen without Christ in us. And uh, purity won't happen in a plant without full and complete nutrition. So our condition can be painful, but you have to know where you're starting. Um, Castle Valley Farm soil is, has many good qualities. It's actually fairly deep. There is rock down there, but there's also chunk, chunks of uh, gypsum down there as well. Um, after all these years of watering, there's still gypsum down there. <laughs> Anybody know what gypsum is? Calcium sulfate, and it comes in two forms. It comes in a monohydrate, well, it might come in three. I don't know enough about it, but it comes in a, at least a monohydrate and a dihydrate. The dihydrate would be more soluble. Anything more hydrated is more soluble. So like ferrous sulfate, the 20% is much more soluble than the 33% monohydrate. So hydrate just tells you how many water molecules are in that um, molecule of ferrous sulfate. Um, so our soil has a lot of good capacity in it, but we're very low in humus. We're below 1%. So if you're below 2%, your microbes are on a starvation diet for carbon. They don't have enough carbon to really fuel anything. It doesn't mean that you just go out there with truckloads of compost and dump it on either, because if we did that, it would just a lot of it would gas off anyway. So we need to, to make the plant functional enough to put those root exudates to increase the the capacity for the roots to exude more carbon structures into the ground, feeding that biology. This is how the grasslands really developed, was the mycorrhiza, mycorrhizal fungi on the plant roots. 
But this R soil here, we're low in cobalt, molybdenum, copper, zinc, iron, phosphate, and potassium, and quite excessive on sodium, calcium, and sulfur due to the water. The manganese levels are actually very exceptional, which helps with, especially with alfalfa tonnage. If you're low on alfalfa, if you're low on manganese, you can't get good tonnage. Um, if you're below 40 parts per million on the test I use, it's just, that's, that's your bare, bare bones minimum. Um, I'd like to see our yields are currently about four and a half to five and a half tons an acre, but with our water supply and amount of heat, I don't see why we can't get to the eight to 10 ton range. Some places of Arizona, they do like 20 tons, but we don't have that season. So I want to make sure that we're all seeing clearly. Are we just covering up problems with the same old solutions, or is our truth progressively opening up to a more complete picture? Um, we want to bear abundant fruit and bear it um, and give it to other people as well. So the lenses that we have into a crop would be the animals growing on, you know, that are grown off that land. Are they healthy or are they diseased? They're going to be one or the other. Uh, most soils don't produce the healthiest of animals. You know, we're not in perfect health because of what we eat, even if it's a, a vegan diet. Um, I do eat a vegan diet, just so everybody knows, but it is, we have to be careful that we get the full nutrition. Um, so another lens into our crops, what does it feel like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? Like even alfalfa, you can taste the leaf. If it's sweet, it's better than if it's kind of bitter and not tasting very good. The plant internally will tell you what, what is actually going on. Um, does, the, does the crop store? We've got apples that, boy, they just... We didn't pick two-thirds of our Honeycrisp apples because we got so much splitting on them. They split at both ends. I've never had apples split like this before, but they just like they just blew apart on both ends. And then they started molding like the next day. So we didn't pick a lot of our Honeycrisp. Um, storageability and the quality, I just can't un underemphasize, is completely a nutritional fact. Um, if you don't have nutrition, you can't store things very well. Um, so another a lens into all of this is a soil test. We've talked about a water test, tissue test, sap bricks, sap pH, sap electroconductivity, and then sap nutritional testing. The bottom, the number six one is actually kind of, um, it's less common, commonly done, but it's a great way of determining a little bit of what's going on in the plant. Um, the nutritional testing is kind of, it's more of a European thing. It's coming out of Holland. And uh, it's happening more and more that people are looking at the nutrition in the sap of the plant, not a tissue analysis. And I think there's validity in that. Yeah. Uh, go back one, David. Oh, okay. So these are just some helps here. And I think when this is all done, we should probably just have the PowerPoints available for, for people. Oh, I'm sorry they're not before that, but <laughs> some of us have been working a lot of 70-hour weeks, and it's hard to, like get everything done in, in a time frame it needs to be done in. Um, but these are helpful conversions. One thing that I'm going to bring out that affects me greatly is about the fifth bullet point down, it says one part per million of a nutrient in solution equals 2.71 pounds per acre foot of that solution. So 2.7 pounds per acre foot of that solution when it's applied on an acre. So if you have 100 parts per million in your water, you're adding on... 271 pounds of that nutrient. A lot of times it'll stick, a lot of times it won't. I'm not a water quality expert. I'm just bringing these facts to your attention. Um, but that's, that's a good ratio to know. 
Um, an acre, you know, is 43,560 square feet. Um, one part per million in a soil, six inches down is um, two pounds per six acre inches. And just some other conversions. Um, the phosphate, it's, all, it's, it's good to know that the fertilizer industry, when it tells you NPK, it's really N-phosphate potash. It's not NPK, it's really N-nitrogen phosphate potash. Um, so it's kind of complicated when one first starts looking at what, how nutritional things are expressed. So some of the nutrient abbreviations go off to the right. We can't go through all of them, but this just goes back to chemistry. Oh, it looks like I didn't change that. Okay. Um, I just want to make the point that there's two kinds of nutrients in, inherent in a soil. Am I moving too much up there? Good. There is, um, there's available nutrients that the plant can readily access. Um, the plant roots can't access nearly what mycorrhiza on the roots can access, so I want to make that also abundantly clear. If you have mycorrhizal fungi on your roots, you know, there's, it's much more acidic reaction. Um, the surface area to volume ratio is so much greater, it can get into the nooks and crannies and pull out water that the plant root can never pull out. It can pull out phosphate. It can release phosphate from calcium phosphate, release it from iron phosphate. Um, so there's a portion of nutrients that, we, that can become plant available. There's a huge portion and a lot of nutrients, not every nutrient, not calcium really, but there's a huge portion that's unavailable. Potassium is one example. You can have 10,000 to 80,000 pounds of potassium per acre. So why are we adding potassium? <laughs> well, it's part of the clay lattices. You know, if you want to just totally mine the land for what it is, you know, sometimes biology can do that for us. It's weak acids continually bringing this potassium off. I actually think it it's, can act as a degrading effect on the soil. I know it does, in fact. Um, magnesium can have huge reserves. Um, Whitmar mentioned that iron can be huge reserve. You can have 40,000 pounds, no problem, in every soil. Wow. We probably have 40,000 pounds in our soil, but I have like 60 pounds released. I wish I had the four, or 60 parts per million. I wish I had the 400 parts per million. So um, a lot of our crops, a lot of our tree crops, they really suffer from iron chlorosis. Um, there's anions. Anions are negatively charged particles. So sulfate is a negative radical. Um, borate is a negative radical. These are leaching elements. So if you don't have humus, there's really not a lot that can hold on to it. Um, I believe there are some anion exchange capacity built within the clays, but it's not nearly what the humus is. Okay, I think we need to keep moving on. Okay, but the sources, there's multiple sources of nutrients. There's the known additions. You got 11520. It's going to be 11% nitrogen. It's going to be 52% available phosphate. And it's going to be 0% potassium. That's a fairly simple fertilizer. You have stuff like compost and manures. You know, that's completely variable depending on what the parent material that went into it. What did the animal feed on? Were they rationed for zinc? With high, you know, high cadmium zinc. Well, it's going to have a high cadmium. You know, were they? Do they have enough copper in their diet? You know, if they're like most animals, they don't have enough copper in their diet. Um, so every addition matters into your soil, whether it's coming, 
whether it's coming in the water, it's coming in the soil, the parent material, whether it's coming in your compost, um, everything matters. Next slide. Um, I wanted to bring out, this is a soil test. The color is really off. Like, this isn't even close. That's okay. But the, this is actually a fairly good soil I sampled in Colorado Springs. It's one of the parks there. I sampled four parks one day for the park service and gave them a recommendation. I don't know if they followed through or not, but you know, I did my best to, to help them out. The, um, the calcium and magnesium is fairly well in balance. It, having the calcium up this high is not ideal, but it's livable because the iron level is you know, very good and the manganese level is very good. Um, can you tell us what the numbers are? Because back here we can't see. You what can't actually see them. Yeah, they seem kind of cloudy. Okay, um, I don't want to go through everything here, but they, I'll go through everything on this first slide. Total exchange capacity is 19.02. pH is 6.9. The humus content is 2.4. Not bad for Colorado Springs, which usually has like, you know, 1% humus. Um, the turf, I'll just say, the turf actually looked really good on this property. The weed pressure was very low to non-existent except for one small spot that I avoided sampling. Um, you know, the ground smelled good. The turf didn't smell like a bunch of ammonia gassing off. It, it smelled good. So smell is a good indicator of, of health. Um, the calcium percentage is 75.26, a little on the high side. It is on the high side. The magnesium is 11.98, almost perfect. The potassium is 4.54. It's just fine for turf. Turf doesn't need a full 7%. It's not like you're, not like you have crop removal that has to be accounted for here. Um, sodium is 2.23, a little on the high side in my, um, in my opinion, with the water quality there. Um, the expected nitrogen release is 68. The sulfate is 21 parts per million. That's a little on the low side. Uh, sulfur is really important to build proteins. You don't want huge excesses, but you don't want a deficiency. Don't, don't run a deficiency on sulfur because it, somebody said it's harmful on biology. It's really not harmful on biology until it gets really high levels of sulfuric acid flushing through. And again, like Whitmar said, a lot of this biology can rebound pretty quickly thereafter. Um, the phosphate level is pretty good. It's at 497 pounds. The calcium, well, we don't really need to go through the pounds of calcium. The base saturation percentages tell us most of the story. But if we go down to boron, it's at 0.68. That's a little on the low side. You really want to maintain your boron. I like to see it more like 1.5 to 2.5. It depends on the crop you're growing. It really depends on the amount of calcium. Don't just apply boron and have a horrible calcium level in your soil. That's a great way to kill a plant. Um, probably more people have killed plants that way than any other nutrient. Um, but you do need to apply boron yearly because it leaches. If you don't have good humus, you really have no way of storing that boron. Your, my iron level at this park is 815. My manganese is 86, which is pretty good on both of those. The copper is 2.3. It sounds, you know, we've been talking the 5 to 10 range, but a lot of people are at about one-half to one percent. Uh, one-half to one part per million. Um, the fungal pressure was pretty much non-existent on the field. You just, you just have to keep that. The copper has to be in the plant for the iron to be used well. 
The zinc is 7.7. It's a little too low. Um, molybdenum, we didn't test. Cobalt didn't get tested. Chloride didn't get tested. In Colorado Springs, I was using humates, and I like to use a high fulvic acid humate. So you have a small carbon structure that can chelate onto some of the trace elements and help bring them into the plant. It just, just adds a little bit of carbon into the system without affecting the nutrient balance. A high level of humate is detrimental, so don't think that more is better. So, you know, maybe 100 to 300 pounds per acre is kind of your range, but once you get over 1,000 pounds, I think you're going to wish you hadn't. Wow. So compost can act in the same kind of way, too. So just realize that you can chelate some of these trace elements you think you're, you're helping to chelate, but you're chelating it away from the plant. Copper is a perfect example, and that's one of the reasons copper levels aren't really much better in organic ag. Next slide. Whitmar, this is your soil. I mean, I can, do you want me to explain it or? Yeah, so, Dan, is that right? Dan, yes. Uh, this is Dan Soil from California. Sorry I can't get all these onto a screen. If I could turn the screen sideways, it would work better. Um, but the, you know, he's having issues actually growing his, his plants. They're not growing really well. But I also see that a lot of things are in balance here. The calcium and magnesium are really good, 67.3 and 14.2. That's pretty good. That's not poor. I mean, it could be a little bit better, but not much. Uh, the potassium is really good. The sodium is not bad at all. Um, the only issues that I see here, there's, there's phosphate is extremely on the excess. This is what composting and manures can do. As you drive your phosphate up so high, it's really hard to get trace elements into the plant. I don't know all the physiology on it, but all the, pretty much all the organic soils I've tested that use cow manure, they typically go excessive on phosphate. And it may happen before you realize it. And it seems like once you pull off, it's like, how do you remove, I don't know of a way to remove that phosphate. There's not a way to bind it up that I know works each and every time. So it's just best to always, always steer on the low side instead of on the excessive. You don't want to jump phosphate on the excessive side. Uh, the zinc level here is 43.2 or 0.7. That's extremely excessive. Usually phosphate and zinc are antagonistic. And if you have excessive phosphate, you want to have really high levels of zinc. But he's still having issues with, his, with the crops. Um, he didn't test molybdenum and, and cobalt. I'm not sure how much that would play a role in this, but it, it could play some role. If you have low molybdenum, particularly, like California, some of the West Coast can have low molybdenum or it can have ultra-high. If you don't have molybdenum, you can't um, reduce nitrate down. So you build up nitrate in the tissue and you can have nematode issues as a result or aphid issues. But high nitrates are damaging. Nobody wants to eat high nitrate foods. We're careful with, I wouldn't say we're careful, but with cattle, you know, in a, in, in a drought year, if they fertilized for a decent rainfall in a region with all the nitrogen they needed early in the season, and then it turns dry, then you have high nitrate in, your, um, in the corn or in the milo or whatever is going to be feeding the cattle. So you can actually kill a cow with high nitrate. Well, we have had some drought years through this country, and I'm sure some of that makes, it, makes its way into our feed supply. 
So molybdenum is key at reducing nitrate, but you know you still you have to keep your nitrogen. You don't want to put on so much nitrogen that if you run into a drought, then you just have pulled in all that nitrogen and made a toxic environment. Um, there was something else I wanted to bring up here. That's pretty much it. He's just he's having issues even despite having relative balance. Whitmar, yeah. So his water is similar to mine. Actually, I looked at my water samples. I think his bicarbonates are actually higher. So he's having issues with high bicarbonates in his water. He doesn't have a bad um, sodium adsorption ratio. Um, he actually has a fairly decent one, but it's still he is he is applying sodium. Uh, the chloride is not all that bad. It's the bicarbonates that are probably limiting some of the uptake of nutrients into the plant. When when I first showed up to at Castle Valley Farms, you know, you walk out there and the bindweed has iron chlorosis. I've never seen bindweed with iron chlorosis. Well, once it started raining some of that started going away. Some of those bicarbonates started to allow the nitrogen. I don't know the full function of bicarbonates, but the iron started getting into the plant. The leaf color changed a little bit. The turf on the lawn looks a lot better once the rain actually came in the monsoon season. So your water quality can really affect the quality that you grow on your, on your property. Um, I don't know of a great cheap way of removing salts out of a lot of water or even small amounts. Next slide. Okay, here is a really bad soil. This is an overcomposted soil in Colorado Springs. This was a, at a certified, no, not certified, but an organic farm that used a lot of cow manure. So in the Midwest, you have a lot of stockyards, and to get rid of manure, they sell it. Um, she had driven up her phosphate and potassium to high levels. This one's at 1,222. Uh, pounds per acre of phosphate. I've noticed that you know 750 wow. really 750 really is your maximum. You really don't want to go above that. You're better off staying below that. You you really there's so many organic soils that I've seen, and I I'm not like a true consultant, but I there's a lot of soils that where the phosphate is far excessive, and everybody always says, well, it just doesn't grow well. Everybody says the same thing. It just doesn't grow well. Um, the potassium is at 9.7, that's excessive. Uh, you never want to get your the combination of potassium and sodium over 10%. And I have a little, on my Excel spreadsheet there, I have a little 10% maximum warning, if you can see that. The units are that column I just pointed out. Um, the best, there's a column that says best and a column that says now with arrows pointing down. So that's just kind of hopefully lead your eye to some of the numbers. Some of the levels, let's see. Iron, typically in this region, the, the other thing I've noticed about compost is it tends to raise the manganese in the soil and it tends to depress the iron availability. But this was in the soil type that I worked on. So this was Colorado Springs, kind of a, I mean, Whitmar had a sandy, kind of a sandy soil, but there was a lot of different soil types throughout the city. Um, but, you know, the manganese, I mean, she got really great manganese levels, but, you know, some of the other problems that came along... So when you use a tool, like if I would come up with a sledgehammer to the wall and, and um, let's, say the, let's say there was no drywall on and I wanted, to put the, I wanted to put the drywall on, well, a sledgehammer is really not your best tool. It's a little on the strong side. Well, you know, 35, 50 tons of compost per acre is a little on the strong side. Some of the best biological farmers that grow the best quality, they're running lower rates 
you know, they're running like three to five tons, you know, of, of compost or you know whatever the soil can take. If you're if you're adequate already, then you want to make sure you don't use more of the wrong tool. So I like to think of nutrients as tools in a toolkit. Um, you're trying to construct a home for the soil organisms, but it's not just for them, it's for the functionality of the plant. You don't just want a green plant. You want a plant that's so functional, disease doesn't manifest itself because it can't. And the same thing is true in us. We want to be so functional in Christ that disease doesn't manifest itself, that Christ lives through us. Um, but again, we all have our, we all have our predispositions and uh, we shouldn't give up, you know, lose hope. So uh, this grower was having aphids and mites and she had a lot of uh, bindweed in this field. And this was like a November sample, I believe. She had a lot of bindweed that was popping back up and it was a hard soil. So I think there was a lot of hidden magnesium also. Um, Let's see. I think we should go on to the next slide. So I do believe that all, William Albrecht was one of the great soil scientists of uh, last century. And, you know, I know a lot of people aren't like fully Bible believers that, that can make some of these great discoveries. But, you know, the Lord can work through a lot of different types of people. Um, I, I wish... We as Adventists had our, I wish we had soil scientists. I wish we had a training program for them that was truly based on fixing the plant from the inside out. Um, I'm not an expert on understanding water quality. I think Whitmar would say he's probably in the same group. We've both kind of scratched our heads to, to certain things. Soil nutrition is much easier, but once you start adding in bad water quality, then the rules can really change quickly. Um, so there's two water samples here from my place at Castle Valley Farms. There's the top sample, which is artesian water. Um, this, this is actually what is feeding our tomato plants. And I think it's what's causing a lot of our issues, a lot of the buildup that's happened over the last four years. Um, I've done a little bit of leaching, but the ground, there's kind of a hard pan down there, like a sodium hard pan that's developed, and it's just it's hard to leach until we break it up. Um, our stream water shows to be quite a bit better. So our, our bicarbonate, so I'm going to focus just on a couple things here. Our, our, our bicarbonates are 175 parts per million um, from the artesian water, and they're 141 from the stream water, so a little bit of an improvement. Um, you don't want high bicarbonates, but at the same time, it's still you can still manage for it um, with sulfuric acid or some other, some other acids. We have so much sulfur... I question whether that would be a smart move or not. My sulfur, my sulfate is 339 parts per million. That's high. And um, on the stream water, it's 166. Um, they call the mountains up, uphill for me. They call them the LaSalle's. What does that mean? The salt. Well, it means that for a very good reason. Um, the chloride level in the artesian water feeding our our tomatoes is 214 parts per million. The chloride from the stream water, at the time I sampled this, is 159. You need to always know that water quality is variable. Um, if you're running stream water like we are, you know, and it like you have a big flash flood type of event that washes a bunch of dirt and salty dirt into a stream, it's possible that the salt level could go up. If, our, if we 
pull a sample when our irrigation pond is really low, I believe our salt level would be higher yet. So, I mean, these are just some things to consider that your water quality really affects things and your water, water quality can vary during the course of a calendar year. Just, just be aware of that. If you're buying a piece of property, you want to make sure you know how much money you're going to have to put into it, um, both on the water quality side and on the soil side to know if you're getting a good value or not. If something's $300 an acre versus $1,500 an acre, there could be a very good reason it's $300 an acre. I had a friend that, um, yeah, we'll go to the next slide. Oh, I got this one. Go ahead. The last one. Mm -hmm. uh, I said rainwater harvesting disadvantages. For, in my case, there's so much salt inherent in the soil that we'd just be, I don't think we'd be much farther ahead. <laughs> oh, rainwater has a lot of salt in it? No, but when it runs across the ground the way it does oh. and into a settling pond, oh. I mean, I see it when once the rain stops or our soil kind of curls up and everything and, you know, it's it's white and crusty. Well, you know, we're, we're in a situation where we essentially, we over-irrigate to compensate. Um you know, we've got the water rights to do it. Not everybody has that option. Whitmar didn't have that option in Colorado. Drip irrigation is not a great way of leaching salts, in my opinion. Drip irrigation is a very poor way of leaching. You need overhead sprinklers to leach. So just because drip, drip, it'll drip and it'll drive the water down right below it. It really, in a sandy soil especially, it doesn't move laterally. So it just kind of moves laterally enough that the salts accumulate on the surface near the crop. I mean, like our, our beds in the field were really, they're really firm. <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to breathe in them. I wouldn't want to be a plant root trying to breathe in them. Uh, this one I sent to uh, Perry Agricultural Lab. I also sent it to Quality Analytical Lab in Florida. Um, water samples are kind of, water samples a water sample in my opinion. If they, I don't know, maybe there's a big difference. But um, there's different ways of also looking at the harmfulness of sodium in a water. I don't think most of you sitting here probably have a lot of sodium in your water. But I'll just, I'll just say real quickly that the ratio of your calcium and magnesium to sodium is important. Um, if you have a high SAR is the old way of, of looking at the problem of sodium. If you have a high SAR... Um, let's say it's above like six, you've got a pretty substantial problem. Uh, we don't have a super high one because we have so much calcium and magnesium. So if we had, didn't have the calcium and magnesium, we'd have a massive problem here. But we have the calcium and magnesium. So it, it just buffers the toxicity of the sodium. And it, it doesn't allow the sodium to accumulate. Our base saturations of our soils are in the range of 77 or so to about 83. There's not a lot of place for sodium to accumulate, so we can flush it pretty readily. And there's so much sulfur in the water, sulfate in the water anyway, and I believe there's probably elemental sulfur. Yeah, um, the only thing that's really coming to mind, I, I think if it's like an activated charcoal, I'm sure it can bind it up, no problem. The problem is how long is it until it saturates and then you have to replace it. Yeah, the chloramines um, are not affected by the charcoal. Though. Oh, they're not? Yeah, I don't know that, I guess. Um, with chloride, I mean, it, it can dissipate with, it can just gas off. I mean, it's, it's not such a big deal, but chloramine is much more stable. Okay, let's move to the next slide. Um, here is a major water quality problem. I don't know if you guys do have a sodium issue, but if I can save one person from buying a piece of property that they shouldn't buy, praise the Lord. 
But this this one, I was trying to say, I was trying to help this guy know if this was a good water water supply to grow vegetables or not. And I said, this is a this is not a good water supply. But he bought the property anyway, and he's going to capture rainwater to the limit that Colorado allows them to. And actually, Whitmar, you can capture rainwater. It just matters who you talk to. I mean, there's there's some loopholes. So in some states, it's illegal to capture water. So when God gives us water out of the air, it is now the states to sell to another state. Well, that they sold to another state 100 years ago. Like Colorado is on the, kind of on the roof of America. Well, the water goes to Kansas. It goes down the Arkansas. You know, you start the Rio Grande. You start the Colorado, like the Colorado River is right where we are. Colorado is an interesting state in terms of water. Water will be a war in Colorado at some point. And that's not looking at an extreme point of view. It's just like, you can't be a grower in that state very easily. It's really difficult. Notice the huge difference between um, calcium and magnesium in relation to sodium. Sodium is 152 parts per million. Calcium and magnesium is 4.74 and 1.04, like really negligible, like nothing. I mean, Olympia, Washington, where I was a grower there for four years, we had more calcium and magnesium there than they, than they do in this water sample. Um, the big thing to focus on down here is the calculated, the sodium adsorption ratio and the adjusted RNA. It's kind of like a SAR value, just a newer way of calculating it. Um, again, I'm not a water quality expert. Don't ask me too many details about it. But I do know the calculations that went into this. Um, so 16.55, that's extremely undesirable, extremely. So I'm showing you some of these extremes, so maybe you can spot them. Um, don't buy a, a piece of property if you have bad water quality. Just don't do it. Or you have a way that's very economical to remove it. Um, the bicarbonate also was extremely high on this. So next slide. This is a tissue analysis, kind of cropped down. This is also done at Perry. Um, I'm also not an expert expert on tissue analysis, but this is kind of looking at what our tomato leaves look like. You need to know in a plant that some nutrients are mobile, some nutrients are immobile. Tell me one immobile nutrient. Calcium. Calcium is mobile. Potassium. Hmm? Potassium is mobile, yeah. An immobile nutrient, when you see chlorosis, what do you usually... Iron. Iron. Iron or manganese are immobile elements. Um, I wasn't seeing an iron deficiency when I pulled this sample. And so I was thinking, is this right? You know, like, how did my manganese shoot up way high? Well, what can happen in a, in a high peat moss type of soil environment like this is in is you can get high manganese levels. And with the high bicarbonates, we're probably eliminating the ability of the plant to pull up iron. We don't, if you don't have healthy, actively growing roots, you're not gonna have good iron uptake. So iron is always taken up at the first, I think they say a rule of thumb is the first four inches of a root system. Root hairs are extremely important. If you don't have them, figure out why you don't have them. Is it high salt levels? Is it high, you know, is it a lack of calcium? Is it, you know, there's, there's a number of things that could probably cause it. But healthy roots, make a healthy top. You can't, like we can't do anything without Christ. We have to be grafted onto him. We can't do anything by ourselves. And a plant top is no different. 
Um, so our nitrogen was low at this point, the potassium was low, the fruit splitting was really excessive. Uh, we did have a little bit of blossom end rot, not horrible. This is actually on brandy wine on the low leaves. But notice the level of calcium, but we also had blossom end rot, and our boron level is excessive. So there's a lot of things that factor into it. In our case, I think it's the water quality. And just if you're building up salts that you shouldn't be building up with your water, you need to flush them through. However, I think a lot of you probably will never build them up like we can build them up out there. And even, even our water's not as bad as it could be. Um, we were extremely low on iron, and I didn't see it until about a week later. I could start seeing iron chlorosis on the new growth, on the tips. Um, I should have noticed it like with some earlier symptoms, but when you have a plant deficiency, there's always... There's four, there's four places a plant can be regarding a nutrient. It can be excessive. It can be optimal. Optimal is where you want it. It can be, um, it can be hidden. There can be a hidden hunger where you don't see a deficiency. You'll see a quality drop and a yield drop. You'll see the quality drop before you almost see anything. And then you'll see the visible deficiency. So the, you never want to get to a visible deficiency. That means your yield is reduced. That means your nutrition will be reduced. Am I talking too fast? Going okay? Okay. Um, you always have to think of how to optimize everything. You know, the, Lord, the Lord's goal for us is to optimize us, to, to purify us, to take away the things that are toxic to us and only leave the things that are beneficial. Well, that's, our, that's essentially our role to a plant. And it's our job to ask the Lord to, to help us know what, what that is. Um, copper level was really low and again copper affects um, the stretchiness of skin and stems and and the fungal the fungal issues so early on when we first started getting the splitting the fungal issues really weren't that bad but as it progressed a little bit further and probably you used up more of the copper right at those um, splits right at those cracks it was molding just like next day kind of a thing um, that we, we feed with alfalfa pellets this last year, and um, you just can't assume everything is in balance with organic um, inputs. And you also have to assume that there's going to be variability batch to batch. So one year it could have worked great, and it could have been just what it needed, but another year maybe it got pulled off of a different field, a different area of a field that had low copper or let's say the fertilizer spreader, you know, broke down and they didn't get it applied at that spot before it froze up in the fall. There's a number of things that can happen, but you have to remember there can be serious batch-to-batch -batch variability on organic products, much more so than on conventional products, which are more regulated. Um, this is not to suggest that conventional products are not flawless. That is not, that is not true, but um, there are some suppliers that have had more issues than others, but you can Usually the Department of Ag regulates that pretty heavily. Um, so this is a traditional tissue test, and the primary purpose is to determine um, for reapplication of nitrogen, potassium, sulfur, and boron, but it also kind of tells you where you're at in your soil in the uptake of copper and some of the other things that may need to be put on through the leaves. Um, putting nutrients on through the leaves in my opinion is probably not the ideal but if your plant needs it and you're feeding off of the plant that needs it you need it too like for instance in our soil in, in uh, utah we're running a zinc deficiency well 
you know, we can run a zinc deficiency and run a zinc deficiency, but I do think, you know, the Lord has given us minds to correct some of these issues. If, if my roof is leaky, which my roof is leaky, <laughs> thankfully we don't get much rain. Um, if a roof is leaky, do we not fix it? If, if, our, if our pipes are freezing, do we not think, oh, you know, I really should have insulated this better? Um, we don't need to. We don't need to create a system where we entrench ourselves to get stuck on this earth. But at the same time, you know, the Lord has given us minds, and He's made us to be not Him, but like Him in His image. So we're to use our creative powers and ask Him for wisdom. Keep on moving. Okay, some tools that I like to use and that I should have gotten out. Whitmore, maybe you could help. Open up one of those boxes and maybe people could look at it after. These are just some tools I think are really helpful for any grower to have, whether you're a backyard, well, not so much a backyard person, but especially the market farmer. Um, a soil tea probe um, and mallet. If you have hard soils, the mallet is really handy to get it in the ground. In Colorado Springs, the sodium is so high, you really have to hammer it in. Like a wood mallet or a rubber mallet? Like a rubber mallet. I just get mine at Walmart. Um, they don't last all that long from Walmart, so I may not say that in a year. The soil sample bag, you just need a Ziploc to put it in. Um, the scales that I use, I got off of Amazon. I got it for $100 total, and I use a 4,000 gram scale. Both of these are made by J Scale. I'm sorry that the, these aren't showing up as, as clearly. I think this isn't a high um, intensity bulb, but it's a 4,000 gram um, scale and I use a 400 pound floor scale and you'd look at the scale thinking this isn't 400 pounds but I've put 400 pounds on it and it, it's pretty accurate I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised um, they're not uh, what do you call it scale uh, weights and measurements approved but I'm not really using it for that purpose and I kind of check it periodically just check your scales periodically don't assume that the number it's spitting out to you is accurate unless you check it every so often it's just good practice. Soil labs do this. They check their their uh, uh, procedures. Go ahead. What, you're, what do you use the 4,000 gram scale for and, and the 400 pound floor scale? Yeah, so the 4,000 gram scale is for like small areas where I need to apply minerals to like, you know, 1,000 square foot or less or 2,000 square foot or less. You know, if you need cobalt sulfate, well, you're going to need a, a gram scale for that because the rates are so low. Even iron sulfate, you know, the rates aren't for that small of an area you can probably pile it on there and um, anyway I use the 4,000 gram scale a lot and I use the 400 when I'm above like 10 pounds of measurement so you don't want to on a scale you don't want to be on either extreme of the scale like if you're at like 10 pounds on a floor scale well, let's try to use another scale to get a little more accurate measurement if you're at 400 pounds well maybe you should have bought a 800 or 1,000 pound scale the um, go back a little bit um, in the back table, I don't know how many of you look, have looked at it, but there's fertilizer ingredient samples back there. Think about making bread. I don't make bread, but I sure eat a lot of bread. Um, my wife makes a lot of bread, thankfully, but I don't make bread. But think of this analogy. When you start with bread, you're starting with nothing in the bowl. Nothing. You're starting with an empty bowl and the ingredients on the counter. When you start with the soil, it's not at all the same. You're starting with ingredients already put into it unknown amounts, you know, unknown carrying capacity of the bowl even. You can, it's like you can't even see the bowl. So this is where a soil test comes in so you know how much nutrients to add in. Um, 
So there's some good books back on the back. I mean, these aren't like everything that Whitmar and I use, but there's there are things that can be of help for anybody that wants to learn more. Um, I would say I'll pick one out specifically, and that would be Neil Kimsey's book, Hands-On Agronomy. It doesn't go through all the details of how to do the calculations. You'll have to go through his class. Um, it's not, he doesn't do that on purpose. He just, it's like us, we, we feel like we have to set the, the baseline so everything's, everything functions off that foundation. And then in the back, I do have a refractometer and garlic press. So if somebody has a fruit sample, we can do a, a reading on that. Next slide. Garlic press, but what are you doing? Um, let me explain that. So a refractometer tells anybody know what it tells? Total dissolved solids measured in percent bricks. Yes, percent in the solution. So the higher the functionality of your plant, the higher the bricks level. You can't just build sugars with no infrastructure. It's like a factory. Look at Toyota. You know, they, they run this Kaizen principle throughout their, their factories, and it's just-in-time, it's essentially just-in-time nutrition. And they feed it and feed it, and they have a pretty high output for the amount that goes into it um, compared to a lot of other factories out there. A plant is a factory. The Lord has actually created us to be, um, you, know, work, you know, workers also. You know, we're, we're, we're supposed to be efficient. You know, Mrs. White makes a good statement um, I didn't get enough statements on here from Spirit of Prophecy, but there's a good statement about, you know, some people can work and work and work and they never get their work done and others are efficient. Well, we want to make a plant that's so efficient you can turn it faster. You know, for instance, instead of X number of lettuce crops, you can get, you know, a little bit more lettuce crops and you get better quality in the process too. Um, we have to also consider that some of the people feeding their animals, their confined animals, um, high quality. Wow, I'm really going through the clock. There's a, they, they feed less feed to grow better quality animals. Um, we are not just some dumb cow though, but we have to take the example of the dumb cow who selectively feeds on the higher quality of nutrition. Uh, William Albrecht did a study, you know, where he put, I think it was superphosphate and something else onto um, native pasture. It was like big blue stem and switchgrass and Indian grass down in Missouri. He put it on a section and they hate it for like eight, eight straight years. They hate it and they piled it and they put the four piles kind of in a row and the cows had to walk the entire length and they went down to the most, the higher quality stack for eight years. On the ninth year, they couldn't tell a quality difference because it had used up that phosphate and the quality had dropped off substantially. So they just ate anything. But then when the regrowth happened again, there was still enough in the, in that, crop in that crop of grass that the animals went and fed off of that instead for the ninth year only and then and then all the changes kind of vanished so the garlic press is to get juice onto the refractometer to measure the functionality of a plant i think we have to be a little careful there there are some groups that rely like almost solely on the refractometer it's just an indicator of what's happening in the soil is the plant functional or is it not it's like with, um, you know, the analogy of bearing good fruit. You either bear good fruit or you don't. You know, and I say you, I mean me. I'm not saying you, I just, all of us. We either bear good fruit or we don't. Um, the thing you need to know about, for, you know, the whole NPK thing, I've touched on this already, but it's, you know, it's, it's nitrogen phosphate. Phosphate is P2O5, so phos two phosphorus 
elements and five oxygen. That's how they express it. Um, the potassium is expressed as potassium oxide. So, you know, the conversion is showing up there, 0.43 to convert phosphate to phosphorus, and um, K2O to get to um, potassium alone is 0.83. So you want, you want to make sure that you understand that this is phosphate and, potas and potash. Um, you also want to understand that the way the fertilizer industry expresses things is that um, it's, it's available phosphate. So you can have like Tennessee brown rock phosphate. It'll say 030. It is not 3% phosphate. It is 20% phosphate. So be really careful you don't get your phosphate up if you're ever calculating fertilizers. This is one of the biggest things that, it's just the way the American fertilizer industry, industry runs. But your 3% instead of 20%, well, that's a 7 to 1 difference. Um, same thing is true with, with potash. It's, to, it's a soluble potash instead of total potash. This is not as big of an issue as phosphate, but like azomite will have 5% potash. But I don't really think you're going to get to that potassium over time. I mean, some of these things, like green sand, that's really not a very good potassium source. Um, it's just such a, you know, you have to have some acid working on it, some biological acids, some something to work on it to release that, that potassium. It's not a, I wouldn't waste my money on, on green sand. I'd, I'd, I'd spend the money on trace minerals from kelp and trace minerals from azomite and C90 and things like that, things that are fairly soluble and then put the money into potassium sulfate. Um, there's probably, there are some benefits to green sand, but on a simplicity standpoint, I think it could be avoided. There, there's some rules of thumb. I am not going to go through those today. Uh, Neil Kinsey does have those in his book. They can be found on extension websites, but keep this in mind about available phosphate versus total phosphate. Many people get into a bad situation pretty quickly. Um, I'm being told that I should wrap it up. Um, let's stop and pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your blessings. Um, they're all around us. I thank you for uh, the winter that's come to give us rest so we can plan for next year and the next harvest that you have in store for us. I thank you, Lord, for making the natural system the way you've made it and help us to um, find the best and most efficient ways of uh, taking this world that's been destroyed and make it into a home that um, glorifies your name and brings some sense of balance back into it. Lord, though, we don't place our home here. We, we put it with you in heaven. So we just ask, Lord, that your, um, your spirit would continue to work in us, continue to lead us into all truth and away from any kind of error. Um, thank you for how you've led in my life and how you've led in this organization here. In your name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.